Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, one of the first sermons I ever preached on during my seminary years, uh, many moons ago, uh, was a passage from Matthew chapter 1. And if you've never read Matthew chapter 1 before, it's not exactly a scintillating page turner, because all it is is a very long genealogy. It's just a long laundry list of names that you can barely pronounce of people that belong to the family tree of Jesus. But the reason why I chose Matthew chapter 1 as one of my first sermons ever is because behind this long list of names is the greatest story ever told. And similarly, what Emily just read for us is just, just a list of names of uh, the 12 disciples in particular. But what I want to suggest to us is that behind these names, just like behind your name, is a story. And uh, one of the clues that tells us a little bit about this story is what is attached to these names. Specifically in this case, uh, what's usually attached to the names of the 12 disciples is something regarding their family. And so they're the son of so-and-so, the brother of so-and-so. But there are three people in particular where no family members are mentioned at all, instead something entirely, entirely different. And that is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, I'm going to put Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, over here for another time, another sermon, although I want to suggest to us that Judas is probably one of the most, if not the most, misunderstood character in the Bible. But for our purposes today, what I want to do is uh, instead fixate on Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. And the reason why I want to just focus on them is because when it came to Matthew and Simon, they could not have been any more opposite when it came to their political views. In fact, they were political enemies. And I'm not talking about the kind of enemies where they're just doing a little bit of a little bit of mudslinging. I'm talking about the kind of enemies where one wanted to actually kill the other. And in fact, they did kill the members of the other side. So I'm talking about that kind of animosity. And yet, even though Matthew and Simon were on polar extremes of their political opinions, political enemies, somehow they were able to maintain and become spiritual friends. And the question is, how? And it seems like that's a very appropriate political question for us today, too. How do we maintain? How do we even strike up friendships with people that hold different political views uh, than we do? And one of the reasons why I think this is an important question is because maybe you can share something that uh, I experience almost on a daily basis. Sometimes when I scroll through uh, my social media, uh, inevitably I see something political that's posted by a friend. And probably much like you, uh, whenever I go through my feed, I mean, there is a, a diverse uh, panoramic view of different political opinions uh, that are on my, my feed. And sometimes when I'm scrolling through, inevitably, uh, 
I just start shaking my head at what someone posted. And I think to myself, why did you just post this? I mean, do you, do you, do you actually believe this? And sometimes I think to myself, why are we even friends if you believe this? And sometimes I even think to myself, should we even be friends anymore if you believe this? And maybe you've had that kind of experience as well, where you actually did delete someone, or you commented on what they posted, and eventually one comment, uh, comment somehow turns into 26 or 30 different comments with everyone else chiming in with what they believe as well. And so the question that I wanna pose for us today is this, how do we maintain or even strike up friendships with those that hold political differences uh, with us? In a letter to William Hamilton on April 22nd, 1800, Thomas Jefferson writes this, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy, as cause for withdrawing from a friend. So the question again is, how in the world do we maintain our friendships with those that are political enemies? I mean, should we even maintain our friendship with them? Well, just yesterday, I got to officiate a wedding for two wonderful members of our community. And one passage that pastors love to preach on for weddings is 1 Corinthians 13. And if you've never read 1 Corinthians 13 before, it is the famous love chapter. And it says that love is patient, love is kind, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't boast, and it goes on and on about what love is. And so oftentimes when we read this passage, we read it through the eyes of sentimentality. But the truth of the matter is there's really nothing sentimental about 1 Corinthians 13 at all. If anything, it's an indictment on the human race. Because the truth is we're really not that patient. We're not that kind. We kind of are rude sometimes. We do boast and we are self-seeking. And yet we are called to love in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way because this is precisely the way that Jesus loves us. And what makes this passage so haunting is that it doesn't say, hey, love everyone except for those people that kind of irritate, bother, and annoy you. It doesn't say, hey, love everyone except for those people that hold different political opinions. Those people you don't really have to love. It doesn't say love everyone except for those Republicans or Democrats or those people that vote for so-and-so. There are literally no, there are zero exceptions to this rule. In fact, the Bible goes one step further, and this is why the teachings of the Bible are so hard. It goes one step further, and it says that we are even called to love our enemies just the way that Jesus did. We are called to love our enemies. This is the reason why. This is the reason why Jesus says, if you love those who love you back, I mean, what, what credit is that to you? Anyone can do that. But try loving those that bother you. Try loving those who disagree with you. And that really does take a bit of gravitas in me working in your life to be able to love this way. Now, I know that we all know how hard it is to love unlovable people or those people that we think are unlovable. I know we know how hard and difficult that is, but I do wonder if we know just how radical this teaching is. You know, what, you know what this passage is saying? The twin goals of life are really to love God and to love our neighbors. Those are the two greatest commandments. And you know what that means? The greatest failure in life then, if these are the greatest commandments, the greatest failure in life, then it's not our failure to get into grad school, get that job, get married, have kids. That's not the greatest failure in life. 
Now, the greatest failure in life, then, is our failure to love. Which is why 1 Corinthians 13 closes by saying, if you have all these things, but if you have not love, you are nothing. You're a big fat zero. And so scripture is calling us to a better way of loving those that are even, uh, that even hold different political viewpoints than we do. And one good example of that is Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Now, how were they able to do that? Well, I like what C.S. Lewis says when he says that a friendship is born when one person says, wait, you too? Wait, wait, wait. You like reading books at cafes too on a rainy day? Wait, wait, you grew up in that town too? Wait, you know so-and-so too? Lewis says that a friendship is born when you are able to say, wait, you too. And when it comes to people that we disagree with, we need that kind of you too moment. But it, it can't just be over superficial things like, like reading a book on a rainy day at a cafe or liking the same sports team. It has to be more than, it has, it's gotta be deeper than that. That, that common ground that Lewis is talking about has to be so strong that it's able to overcome our differences. And if there's one thing that can overcome our differences, I really do think that it is Jesus. And if it's regarding, you know, if it's with people that do not share our same faith beliefs, it might not be Jesus, but what we do share in common is the fact that we are all made in the image of God with dignity and respect. And so even those that we disagree with deserve our dignity and respect as well. And so what I want to do for our purposes today is to sort of peel back the layers of these two onions, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector, and get to the core of their stories. And so let me begin with Simon the Zealot. Now, there's not a lot that we know about Simon the Zealot. In fact, his name is only mentioned three times in the Bible, and he's really not doing that much. But if there's one clue that opens up the door to Simon's story, it is the fact that he is a zealot. So the question is, what's a zealot? Well, I like what George Barna says uh, in his book, Growing True Disciples. And he says, this is what a zealot is. You and I are followers of many different people, organizations, activities, and ideas. For example, I follow the New York Yankees. When they win a game, I'm happy for a few seconds and then I get on with my life. When the Yankees lose a game, I'm disappointed for a few seconds, and then I get on with my life. I am not a Yankee zealot, a person who is single-mindedly invested in the day-to-day -day fortunes of that team. So a Jewish zealot then was someone that wasn't single-mindedly invested in the Yankees, but they were single-mindedly invested in the nation of Israel. And so they were fiercely loyal to Jewish law, and restoring the glory days of yesterday, and they were fiercely opposed to Roman imperialism. They were opposed to paying taxes. They were even opposed to using Greek, despite it being the lingua franca of the day. Uh, there was even an extreme group of zealots called the Sicarii, and a Sicar is basically a small dagger. And so the Sicarii were known as daggermen, and oftentimes the Sicarii would go into crowded places and they would stab Jewish people that were loyal to the Roman government. And uh, so the Sicarii were sort of these disruptors, and they, they believed that through violence, uh, they could um, take down all the Jewish traitors and overthrow Rome. They would burn down the houses of Jewish people that were loyal to Rome. They would steal their cattle. I mean, 
they were disruptors of society. And so people were afraid because they would just stab people in a crowded place and then disappear and ghost away. And we're not exactly sure if Simon was a member of the Sakari, but we, what we do know is that he was a member of the Zealots. And he was, fear, he was a patriot to his own nation. And so when Simon hears that there's this Jesus fellow who's very powerful and can do all these things, and he's Jewish, I mean, he, he's, he has all these political aspirations in mind and of this political liberator that would finally overthrow uh, the Romans and restore the glory years of King David and King Solomon. Only to be disappointed by the fact that Jesus kept saying things like, we have to love our enemies. And Jesus kept saying things like, my kingdom is not in this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Simon was confused, and yet he followed him. And on the other extreme, we have someone named Matthew, the tax collector. And while Simon, you can say, is a small government guy, Matthew was the exact opposite. He was a big government guy. He was a he was a pro-supporter of Rome. And the reason for that is because, again, he was a tax collector. Now, what, what makes tax collectors pro-Rome? Pro the Roman government strategically selected Jewish people to collect taxes from other Jewish people for the increase of Roman revenue. And so they turned the Jewish people against one another. But they not only strategically did that, they also didn't pay the tax collectors a salary. Instead, what they did is that they gave them permission to acquire more than the tax. And so the tax, the tax collectors were, collected the taxes from the people, but they could, they could make even more money by requesting more taxes out of them. And so they would pocket the difference. And so tax collectors in many ways were seen as traitors to their own people. They were seen as greedy. Uh, and, and nobody liked tax collectors at all. And yet Matthew one of the 12 disciples, in the gospel that we're reading, Matthew was a tax collector. And this is what we read in Matthew chapter nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now don't miss what this verse is saying. Because in this verse, Matthew is sitting at his tax collecting booth. He's skewing the numbers on TurboTax for his own favor and gain. There's a long DMV kind of line of people that are anxiously and probably angrily waiting to see how much they owe the government based upon whatever Matthew decides. And so you can hear the coins clanging, the shekels clanging, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes up to the booth and he says, Matthew, follow me. And you can imagine think, Matthew thinking, wait, you want, you want me to follow you? I mean, I can't even believe you're talking to me. Nobody likes me. The only people that like me, the only friends that I have are other tax collectors, and you're a rabbi, and you're talking to me, you, and you actually want me to follow you? And, and what I so love about this story is that Matthew gets up. He quits his lucrative job. He just quits it on the spot and he follows him. He doesn't know where Jesus is taking him. He has no idea, but he has faith enough in him to believe that wherever he's leading him is the way. Now, I, I know some of us know what that's like, quitting our job, moving to another city, not knowing what to expect next 
And it does take a little bit of faith, doesn't it? And here we see Matthew placing his faith, leaving everything behind and placing his faith in Jesus, only to be surprised by the fact that Jesus calls another person to follow him. And that's Simon the Zealot. And you can imagine Matthew thinking, wait, I, I left my job so that I can follow you, but you, you want me to follow you with, with Simon? He wants to kill me. How in the world are we supposed to follow you together? And yet, what's so interesting about Jesus calling these two political enemies to become his followers is that not once do we ever hear in Scripture about Matthew and Simon saying, we cannot be friends. Not once do we ever read about them discontinuing their friendship at all, despite the fact that Matthew is a tax collector, Simon's a tax hater. Uh, Matthew is a servant of Rome. Uh, Simon is an enemy of Rome. Matthew is a traitor to his own people. Simon's a patriot. And yet, even though they were political enemies, they were somehow able to follow Jesus together. They ate together every day for three years. They walked together every day for three years. They slept in the tight quarters of a fishing boat every day for three years. They sat at Jesus' feet together every day for three years, and not once do we ever see in Scripture them wanting to discontinue their friendship because of their politics, and the question is how. What captured their imagination in such a way where they were able to be spiritual friends despite the fact that they were political enemies? And that new common ground that they found was ultimately in Jesus. That their identity was no longer as a tax collector or as a zealot, but their new identity now was as a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, Jesus was calling them to a better way. And by better way, just so that there's no misunderstanding, by better way, I am not saying that the better way is just, just being nice and polite. I am not saying that the better way that Jesus is calling us is to just disagree less and fight less. No, that is not the better way that I am suggesting at all. If anything, if you study the life of Jesus, his life is filled with disagreement and debate. In fact, he sought after it. So I am not saying that the way of Jesus is to disagree less, but what I am saying, what scripture is saying, is that the way of, dis uh, the way of Jesus is not disagreeing less, but it's disagreeing better. And there's a world of difference between the two. And so the question is, how do we disagree better in the midst of the political culture, uh, the political climate that we live in today, where we disagree on COVID, we disagree on global warming, we disagree on abortion, we disagree on immigration, we disagree on healthcare, and the list goes on and on about all the things that we, we disagree with. And so how, what, what does that better way look like? Well, I like what Ann Voskamp uh, once said when she said that when you are interacting with someone that you disagree with, rather than giving them a piece of your mind, give them a piece of your heart. And so the question again is, how do we give someone a piece of our heart instead of just giving someone a piece of our minds? And I think one of the things that we always have to remember is that whenever we're arguing with, with someone, particularly if there's a lot more heat than light, is that whenever we're arguing with someone that we always have to remember that behind the argument is an arguer. 
And chances are, if there's more heat than light, oftentimes that arguer has gone through something that causes them to have more heat than they do light. Pastor Edwin Colon, who is a friend of our church and who speaks at our church occasionally, uh, was once sharing a story about how he was having an argument with his wife, Liz. And I think just wanting to sort of just quench the argument, he said, okay, Liz, I, I hear you, I hear you. And Liz responded by saying, I know that you hear me, but you don't feel me. And that struck a chord with Edwin. You see, there is a sense and sometimes when we, when we do talk, sometimes our discussions drive us further apart. But there also is a different kind of way of talking where instead of our discussions driving us further and further apart, it can drive us further and further together. But the key is to always remember that behind the argument is a arguer. Behind the argument is a person. Now how, again, how, how, how do we do that? Well, uh, before the pandemic, uh, we used to do something called Curious. And uh, it's an opportunity for anyone that has questions about Christianity just to ask questions. Sometimes we have someone in our community that um, just became a Christian, share their story, and they can ask them questions. And then pastors go up and anyone can ask uh, the pastors questions about anything. I mean, you know, questions are at the heart of our ministry. And so you're, you're allowed to uh, ask any questions that you want. And you know, sometimes on occasion, there are times where some, some questions have a lot of heat on it. And on one particular occasion, I remember there was one question that had a little, you know, had a pinch of hostility in it. And I vividly remember this, but um, Dr. Harvey uh, chose to answer the question and he responded in a way that was so gentle and kind that it disarmed the person that was asking the question. And after our curious session was over, uh, one of the members of our community came up to me and, and he said, he said, wow, wow. I, I don't remember what Dr. Harvey said, but I do remember how he said it. The truth of the matter is, uh, friends, people, people really don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. That's what it means to not only give people a piece of our minds, but to really give someone a piece of our hearts. Now, the question is, why are we called to live this way? Why are we called to go this high road? Why not just go the road that everyone else seems to be going in? And the reason for that is because this is the way that Jesus treats us. And maybe I can read for us um, one passage, um, one quote from um, C.S. Uh, Lewis's student, George Watson, who um, um, describes C.S. Lewis as the best teacher and colleague he ever had. And um, there was a Christ-likeness about C.S. Lewis that George Watson really admired about him. And, and Lewis goes on to say this, uh, or Watson goes on to say this about Lewis. He was the best teacher I ever had and the best colleague. He did not ask or expect me to share his convictions. His manner might be described as politely merciless. His twin passions by then, apart from literature itself, were people and arguments. But he did not often make the mistake of confusing them. He had vigor without venom. He was generous. If I were ever to be asked what I learned from him, that would be my reply. 
the art of disagreement. Perhaps this is the reason why the scholar David Augsburger once said that being listened to is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. Why are we called to live this way? Why are we called to love this way? Why are we called to listen this way? Because this is the way of Jesus. So let me close with uh, finishing the story about how Matthew ends up following Jesus. After Jesus says to follow him, it says in the rest of the verses, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, this, the heartbeat of what Christianity is all about, it's not, it's not just for us to be nice to other people and you know, kind and polite and civil. No, that is not the moral of Christianity. The moral of Christianity is that we really have no morals. Uh, we are not as moral as we think we are. And if you want empirical proof that our hearts are dark, look no further than the uh, comments section of basically anything that is posted. And there you'll find all the empirical proof that you need that our hearts, there's something wrong and dark about our hearts. Scripture says that out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. And you know what? Out of the overflow of our hearts, the thumbs also type. And based upon all the empirical proof that we need, that you can find on the internet, clearly there is something wrong with us. And that is why Jesus came. He did not come to call the healthy, but the sick. But you will never see your need for Jesus if you do not realize that you are sick. If you feel like everyone else is sick, they're the problem with the world, they're what's wrong with the world, and if they were to change, the world would be a better place, you will never see your need for Jesus. It is only when you realize that the moral ground is leveled and that all of us fall short, that you yourself will see your need for the great physician that is Jesus. If you try to swim from New York to London, you might go five miles. If Michael Phelps tried to swim from New York to London, he might go 15 miles. But the point of the matter is, both of you will fall short of getting to London. And similarly, all of us fall morally short of who God is. And yet, even in the midst of that, our moral failures, on the cross, Jesus dies for that. And he takes our wicked, dark hearts, transplants that within himself, and he gives us his pure heart. He takes our filthy thumbs, plants it within himself, and he gives us his pure thumbs so that we would be forgiven and also made more and more like him. Jesus is the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 13. He is the one that is patient. He is the one that is kind. You know, one of the exercises I had the, um, the husband and wife do uh, whenever I preach the sermon is to have their names substituted for love and to say, John Doe is love. Jane Doe is love. Jane Doe is patient. Jane, John Doe is kind. And when you put your name there in replace of love, that you're never envious, you're never boastful, you're never self-seeking, you're never, I mean, it just sounds so silly. But when you replace love with Jesus and that Jesus is always patient, he is always kind with us. He is always merciful towards us. When you realize that he is that way with us, we, you realize that this is 
kind of how we have to treat other people as well. There's a uh, famous political line um, and religious line actually um, that was used. It's, it's attributed to multiple people, but uh, you may have heard of the, the saying, um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now we can debate about whether something is an essential or non-essential, but the point is that in all things, we are to display love and charity to one another. And I'll close with, um, you know, I opened with the very first sermon I ever preached. Maybe I'll close with the, the first movie I ever watched at a movie theater. In 1989, um, there was a movie that came out called uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And I hate to close this sermon with such, in such a cheesy, cheesy, cheesy way, but if it's cheesy enough, hopefully it'll stick to the roof of our minds and the depths of our hearts. Uh, but one of the, 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 the phrases that Bill and Ted say over and over and over again is be excellent to one another. And we are about 48 hours away from uh, the election. Half our nation will be elated. The other half of our nation will be enraged. And I don't know who is going to win, but I do know that we are called to love one another. And I do know that we are called to be excellent to one another without exception, because this is the way of Jesus. Let's pray together.